Hello. and cannoli. What about Federico? Ciao! Ciao everyone! This is Raffaele. And this is Giulia. And wherever you are, welcome to Italy. Welcome to a new episode of Guns, Books and Cannoli. For you, this evening we have a very special episode which will be narrated by Raffaele himself. And the Because episode... Giulia has to iron tonight. Yeah. Yes. That's <laughs> a, a really big win for any Italian guy. To have a, a girlfriend, soon-to-be wife, that irons his shirt. You can do it, guys out there. They exist. As I was saying, tonight we have a very special episode, which will be narrated by no one other than Raffaele himself. And the episode revolves around a strange guy with a very strange nose. It's one of the most famous profiles in the history of art. Yes, you could definitely say that. And the story is set in a very lovely town, a magnificent, mysterious small town located in the center region, obviously, Le Marche. The name of the town is Urbino. It has a very fascinating history, tightly connected to the one of the men Raffaello is going to describe to you tonight. So I will leave you to this episode called Once Upon a Time in Urbino. Enjoy and see you next time. Ciao! So as Julia was saying, today it's a Game of Thrones episode, or you could say a Berserk episode if you get the reference we're going to talk about a real bastard a count that killed his own stepbrother a war chief of a mercenary company who was also a cultured man that has had an unbelievable amount of importance in the history of art and sciences but first let me tell you something that i believe that can happen only in italy that's a true story that happened to me and julia couple of months ago and had a big part in us deciding to start this podcast because we believe in science. We were visiting a city knowing next to nothing about its history. First thing we do, we enter in a beautiful church, the cathedral of Urbino, and we find a celebration there, totally by chance, a costume celebration. There was a little army of dames, knights and pages in traditional Renaissance costumes, plus a few locals and tourists. The atmosphere was that of a party, barely tempered by Ave Maria sung in the background. Turns out it's the 600th birthday of Federico, the Signore of Urbino, builder of the city, protector of the arts. You can mention here Raphael and Piero della Francesca, and most of all a brave warrior. There were beautiful a cappella choir, the mayor of the city, recognizable by his three-colored sash, was in the first row, and we were totally flabbergasted. That's one of my favorite adjectives in English. And we decided to stay for a while because it really seemed fun. Enter the priests and the bishop. It was a real celebration. And the bishop looked like the only one who was not having fun. Actually, he looked quite upset. During the preaches, he stands up and begins to verbally whip the audience. He said three things. 
first. Nobody here has lost a loved one, yet this is a suffrage mass for an immortal soul. It is a serious thing. It does not matter if the Count died six centuries ago. Because here, he said, we do not think in human time or with human values. Our brother, the Count, died yesterday. We are praying for his soul. We are doing it only because we have signs that he repented from his life of sins. Remember the painting by Piero della Francesca, where he had himself drawn in full armor in all his might, but on his knees in front of the miracle of the Incarnation. And then he said, our brother the Count was a mercenary. He killed many people, caused great destruction. He fought for the church, but also against the church in an angry voice. Of course, Federico was a man of culture, he made this town great, he brought the money, he brought the arts, and art is surely a sign of the Holy Spirit, but still, this soul is in dire need of God's mercy, let's pray. And then he said one last thing, because in that day, his, the mortal remains of Federico were brought back in the city of Urbino, and he said, my people, and he looked around the mayor, the other priests, the people in the funny renaissance costumes. My people wanted him to be celebrated in a church, but we don't celebrate here. The only thing we could do was to say a mass in his suffrage. But let's not forget who he was and how horrible war is. I don't know if this seems weird only to me, but this guy, this bishop, was seriously upset about something that happened six centuries before. And he was not mad, like, senselessly. There was no question about revenge or hate or asking for reparation or anything else. It's just that this particular bastard did something wrong, something precisely and historically individuated, and 600 years are nothing. No anger just a precise reasoning. This guy was brought in a church because yes, the Holy Spirit has certainly given him the light to work for beauty and truth, for art, but still things have to be explained and this is the job of the Catholic Church in Italy and it's their job yesterday, today and tomorrow. This is the ideology that has permeated Italian culture more than any other. We felt it was like an extremely Italian situation. And that's exactly the kind of thing we are searching for in this podcast. What do you think? Isn't it puzzling? And of course, we had to start digging to understand more about this Federico. And it's really a Game of Thrones episode. This craziest bastard is Federico da Montefeltro. And you find that really the only thing missing from this story in order to make it one by R.R. Martins is dragons and zombies. Of course there are huge fire-speeding things that are hard to control that change the history of battles, that just siege artillery beginning to dominate fields. We are in 1422, exactly six centuries ago, and we have a tiny little independent dashi called Urbino, placed in a very strategic position at the center north of Italy. It's a bit north of Roma, but it's on the other side of the Appennini, 
they are a mountainous chain that divides Italy in two longitudinally. And it's like our backbone, it's quite difficult to cross and separates the two fertile coastlines of the Adriatic Sea to the east and Tyrrhenian Sea to the west. But of course we will have an episode dedicated to the geography and geopolitics of Italy. For now, suffice to say that at this moment in time, this position is more crucial than ever. Italy was fragmented in many tiny signorie on the north. The papacy controls a vast area at the center, while the south is unified and dominated by a powerful kingdom, the kingdom of Napoli, a beacon of culture and splendor in these times with strong dynastic ties to Spain. There is a long series of small wars between these states, and the economy is flourishing after the dark centuries, let's call them like that. But this economy relies on commerce, and moving goods around it's very difficult. Every mountain, every hill, and every little rock really has a castle on top that controls the area. You have to pay to pass, and without artillery that is both powerful and mobile, taking control of all these tiny castles, cities, boroughs, it's impossible. What about commerce for the seas? Well, in these times it's particularly complex, because the Ottomans have conquered almost all of the ancient Byzantine territories, and they are ready for the final push to Constantinople. Pirates are everywhere, and the Adriatic Sea is not anymore a Venetian Sea, so the Turks control the Mediterranean. And thus, a proportionally bigger flow of commerce goes from the south of Italy to the north by land, avoiding the Ottoman-controlled sea routes. If you go by land, you need to pass through the seaside plains, and Urbino controls the Adriatic side. It is a poor place, built on hills, without many fertile lands, but has a very very defensible position, ready to control the routes. Its people, in order to earn a living, have started a very profitable business, war. They have become mercenaries, skilled soldiers, extremely requested because war, war never changes. Of course, it never changes, but it's always different. And Renaissance is near, and there is no point in having steel-clad knights and peasants with bow and arrow. There are many new things, pike techniques, that are getting more and more efficient against cavalry. But you need to be organized, you need to make squares, you need to be brave in order to stay shoulder to shoulder with people you know and trust. And of course, there are crossbows very efficient against cuirasses, but complex to produce and maintain. And there is already gunpowder, made by Satan himself, as a Renaissance poet Ariosto has said. Of course, gunpowder is still not useful in order to be used for handheld weapons, but it's changing the art of sieges. Laying a siege is one of the most difficult things in war. It needs professional abilities, the capacity to control the unpredictable cannons of the time, and, of course, an iron will to control over your troops. You can see why this is becoming a thing for pros. And the people from Urbino are pros. They provide manpower, trained and organized artisans, architects, skilled in the art of fortification, both for building fortification and destroying them. And of course, the most difficult thing to provide, the condottieri, the war chief. The dynasty of Urbino, the Montefeltro, 
is made by pure blood condottieri, meaning people who take the condotta, a mercenary contract, in a nutshell. You are at my service for one year with ex lance spears, meaning not one person with a spear, but a functional team of a horse rider plus spare horses and two people for support, and ex foot soldiers and I pay you X thousand gold coins in peace and much more in war and you take care of everything, meaning you provide the food, the weapons, you pay the men, you organize the tactics, the strategy and apart from the goal, you can keep ransoms and sucking fees. It's a very profitable enterprise, but a very risky one, of course. Federico da Montefeltro, our guy, was the heir of Count Guidantonio, but an illegitimate one. And one bad day for Federico, when he was 12, the Count had a legitimate son, a true heir, Odantonio. That's a very odd name. Luckily, Federico was a tough kid. What he did was quite unbelievable by modern standards. The small army of mercenaries of Urbino was in disarray because the count was not there and he was delegating to unskilled relatives. But finally, in 1438, when our little bastard was just 16, 16 years old, he was given the command of the mercenary army, 800 horsemen, plus an untold number of foot soldiers and support troops, tough warriors with a solid internal hierarchy built from respect, valor, blood ties, led by a 16 years old to the service of one of the strongest signore in Italy, the Duke Filippo Visconti of Milan. What could go wrong for Federico? Incredibly not much. He had some very good results in the countless small wars, all by being both a warrior and a normal adolescent of the first renaissance who wrote or had his friends write odes to the boobs of some nice lady of Urbino, and we have those. For his stepbrother Odantonio, the situation was dire instead, because after the death of their father, Odantonio started to make debts, to levy taxes, to have too much fun with women. Most of all, he started to be a little too friendly with the sworn enemies of Urbino, the Malatesta, Signore of Rimini, a small independent signoria all too near to the borders of Urbino, a sworn rival of their people. This, for Italian people, is something that really cannot be forgiven. Of course, all of this we know from sources paid by Federico later in his life, so I would not trust this too much, but what we do know is that one day in 1444, where Federico has a convenient alibi, is out of town, a small troop of seditionaries enters the palace of Urbino at night and without encountering any resistance, slain Sodantonio. What do you know? In a few days, Federico is the new ruler of Urbino. He negotiated a few advantages to the ancient democratic institutions of the Comune. Those are relics of ancient traditions, but they are still important. And he is solidly in power. And he can then proceed to become one of the most recognized and well-paid condottieri of the period and really of Italian history, bringing a steady flow of gold in his mountainous country all gold that will be invested in majestic architecture, fortifications, but most of all in creating art, culture, thus making Urbino one of the centers of Italian Renaissance. 
and mathematics and Federico was really a renaissance man. Mathematics and architecture were the most important sciences for Federico because of their importance in war, of course. Think about ballistics, for example. But on, not only this, in his letters we find mention of how he praised the mathematical arts, that was the name of science at the time before Galileo invented the scientific method, and he praised them because they are the most truthful. And all the architects he employed, such as Luciano da Laurana, the mind behind his majestic palace, notable for its beauty, its imposing proportions and its flawless toilets, complete with the recycling system, or Francesco di Giorgio, military architect, who was commissioned more than a hundred buildings and fortifications. All those pros were genuinely impressed by his command of their art. But right after that, Federico was a true humanist. He commissioned famous paintings to Piero della Francesca, one of the first, maybe the first, who applied mathematics to the study of perspective. And most of all, the real god of the painters of the time, Raphael Santi, in Italian Raffaello Sanzio, born in Urbino, grown up in the palace of Federico, before going all over Italy to make his most precious works. And of course, for sure, we will dedicate a whole episode to this artist. I'd like to show you the face of Federico, who was made immortal by Piero della Francesca in two paintings, one in Milan, and that's the one who was quoted by the bishop during the commemoration mass, and the other one in Florence. It's considered iconic in Italy. Of course, Federico was quite ugly, uh, you could say, but probably he was not as ugly and as he was painted, always by the left side of his face. And that's because well, he was in one of those jousts that you see in movies, like A Knight's Tale, and something happened, something happened that was quite recurrent. A wooden spear, of course not pointy, but with the full force and weight of a horse running, hit him in the face. It slid on his helmet, but instead of sliding safely to the side of it, somehow went inside his right eye socket, thrusting inside his head, devastating the eye and putting him at death's door for weeks. Yet he survived, but disfigured. And here it is, since beauty was not his forte anymore, he uh, had his nose bridge cut off in order to be able to peek on his right side with the remaining eye. And he became known in his dominion as the one-eyed lord who saw everything. That's because he had a penchant for meddling with his people. He invested everywhere, financed any promising enterprise, took steps to ensure that no family went hungry and no girl was forced into prostitution. Of course, all these things are associated with fabulistic kings, but in this case the people from Urbino have a tradition of believing it all true. And seeing what this mountainous city is today, that's hard to deny. Who knows? What is obvious is that all this costs lots of money, and Federico had a very steady income as a mercenary war chief, but his activity of a secondottiero permitted him also to be in the middle of one of the most peaceful periods in the Renaissance. And weirdly enough, to act as a political force for stability. He brought peace through war. And of course, that was because there was an external threat that was impossible to ignore. The Turks, with the conquest of Constantinople in 1453, when Federico was just 31, all the major powers in Italy came to an agreement. 
the Peace of Lodi. It was signed just a year later, in 1454, between the Signoria of Milano and Firenze, the Republic of Venezia and Genova, and the Kingdom of Naples, with the intent to cooperate for stability and territorial integrity against the Ottoman Empire, but also very much against France, an ever-looming threat to the security of the Italian peninsula, who was often, sadly, used by Italians against other Italians. So this league was a nice idea from the Medici family, with the benediction of the Pope, who was not of course only a moral authority, but controlled a huge state at the center of Italy. And by the way, he was also the Lord of Federico, who was his vassal, if only in name. But this kind of ideas need an armed branch. And that was the Italian League. And its chief general was of course, of course the best condottiero in the area, Again, Federico. It's important to understand that this Lega Italica was not an alliance or a confederation. It was an insurance against, of course, the external threats from the north and from the sea, but most of all it was an insurance against any temptation from the stronger Italian states to become dominant. Meaning that little wars were permitted. Some states exited, entered again in the league, but the important thing was that no state was supposed to enlarge too much. Even the papal state had to be kept at bay. One story is both very human and very Machiavellian. Federico had a sworn enemy. Of course, as always happens in Italy, uh, that was his neighbor, colleague and relative by marriage, Sigismondo Malatesti. Signore of Rimini, which is now a sunny seaside city in the Adriatic near our home right now. And by those times was an independent signoria, vassal of the Pope in name only. And this Sigismondo Malatesti guy was a rival of Federico in everything. He was a condottiero as well, who regularly was employed by the rivals of Federico's employer of the moment. Of course, if one chose Federico, the enemy was choosing uh, Sigismondo. They brought their rivalry all around Italy, and of course, often, very often inside their own territories, fighting like mad. Federico usually had the upper hand, especially thanks to his superior political abilities, which always gave him the appearance of the defender of the peace, while his rival was the untrustworthy guy, a slender that's deadly if you're a mercenary. After decades of this, Federico had found ways to crush his rival into the ground. He had honors, money, respect. The Pope, Paolo II, very weird character. They say he was strangled by the demons he was trying to summon in his private chambers. The Pope asked Federico to finally destroy the Malatesta and give him Rimini, of course having some, you know, small territorial enlargement for himself. But Federico instead defended his sworn enemy, who was able to keep the city. Why? Because of course he preferred to keep as a neighbor a manageable enemy than a huge and powerful, but maybe a little too powerful, friend. And what remains right now? What's left of this guy? This powerful and recognized signore and condottiero of one of the most significant periods in Italian history, the time when Renaissance was unleashed before spreading throughout all Europe. After six centuries, 
we have a small casket of bones moved around, hailed by the population of Urbino, or used as a cautionary tale by the bishop, the representative of the church that Federico usually protected but at times defied. We have a lovely small city outside of the touristic routes that converge on Florence, Venice, Rome or Naples. Urbino, a city on a hill made beautiful, fortified and rich by this striking personality that many people still see as a direct forefather. And with good cause, well, because when you walk around the city you will see many faces that will remind you of his with penetrant eyes, decisive strolls that definitely remind you of his blood. For sure he had many relationships in his youth and after he remained a widower, unconsolable, but after all a little bit too romagnolo we say in Italy, to bury himself. That's pretty much all we have of him, of course with a notable ex exception of a few Capolavori, great works of art by Piero della Francesca that made his face immortal. And the whole city of Urbino, everything that time could not take away, at least for now, I almost forgot. Something remained also uh, from the spite that he received in life. Of course, that comes from the guys that do not forget, they forgive but do not forget. The church. Federico had the most beautiful palace in a small town on the hills where he had his summer residence in peacetime. He transformed uh, this little city, 20 kilometers from Urbino, into a little perfect gem. You can still visit here right now small borough that, well, after his death there was a new pope called Urbano, he decided to take this little town for himself and rename it in his own honor, Urbania. I think he thought something like, it sounds like a little like Urbino, but probably also a little like Vaffanculo. Thanks for staying till the end, it means a lot and we appreciate it. We will see you on gunsbooksandcanoli.com if you want more details, bibliography or on social media platform. We opened a Twitter account to quarrel with Italian haters and we see you in Italy. Ciao!